welcome to What the Duck, a podcast with real experts talking about direct spin challenges and experiences. And now, here's your host, Source Day's very own manufacturing maven, Sarah Scudder. Thank you for joining me for What the Duck, another supply chain podcast brought to you by Source Day. I'm your host, Sarah Scudder, and this is the podcast for people working in the direct materials part of supply chain. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and at S Scudder on Twitter. Today, I'm gonna be joined by Dennis and we're going to discuss how to create a process for effective cross-department communication. If you work for a manufacturer and are struggling with your departments working in silos and lacking consistent communication, then this episode is for you. Dennis has worked in manufacturing and distribution as a COO overseeing procurement departments for several years. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are melting away here in Austin. I think the high today is 104 and it's crazy humid. So I'm hoping you're enjoying some better weather on the East Coast. Yeah, we actually are for a change. Uh, we've been pretty swampy and rainy for the last couple of weeks. So just uh, yesterday, we got our first uh, nice, uh, warm, sunny, low humidity day. And so I'm enjoying it as long as I, as long as I can. So Dennis, we're going to go way back in time. So you're going to have to put your thinking cap on. And I want to talk about when you first started your career and how you got into manufacturing. Yeah. So, uh, I was uh, coming out of the service. I spent a few years, uh, as an officer in the Marine Corps and, um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I, sort of looked at myself, saw myself as very operationally uh, astute. I knew I was good at leading and managing people and uh, processes. And so I saw manufacturing logistics as sort of an extension of those skill sets. Um, and at the time, you know, coming out of the service for whatever reason, I had the view of, of sales as being somewhat used cars salesy. So I really didn't have any desire to go into sales at the time. That kind of came later. Um, but, uh, I hooked up with a company called Arrow Electronics, which was, is, is, uh, Fortune 200, very, you know, large, uh, distributor, um, value add provider, um, company that does, uh, semiconductors, computer products, systems, et cetera. And uh, now since then they've actually expanded into reverse logistics in a variety of other areas, but a uh, great company, great company to get a, a good uh, foundation for. Um, as I said, I was there for, with them for about nine years through a variety of roles. Started off in logistics and manufacturing and actually morphed over time into sales roles, uh, which was kind of a story unto itself. So I also started my career in sales, so I can appreciate what you just said about a negative stigma and thinking that being in sales is, is really snaky and you're pushing things on people, which yeah. is not always the case. And hopefully if you're listening to this yeah. and, and are in sales or have been in sales, you didn't have that experience as well. But I do think you learn a ton from being in sales and it can help you be a later in any capacity that you do decide to go into if you do decide to pivot from sales. So Dennis, how did being in sales help you be a better manager for supply chain and procurement teams, which you've you've had responsibility for several times. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I um, I really 
sought it out after being in the business with Arrow for a while and having a lot of interaction with salespeople, getting a little bit of a different perspective on, you know, what that role was and, and wanting to, you know, challenge myself in, in different directions. Um, at the time, I really didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed as just sort of one specialty in logistics. And, um, you know, going into sales and having that experience was really eye-opening um, in the sense that I think there's nothing more fundamental in business in many ways than that customer interaction. And I think um, certainly being in a situation where you have to deal with customers, sometimes not happy customers, um, you know, both informs you in managing your operations because it gives you a much deeper understanding of what it takes to close that deal. And, um, and I think likewise, uh, it also gives you an, when you have the understanding of the operations side, it also informs your ability to make promises and commitments to customers, um, because you have a better understanding of what's doable, uh, what kind of promises you can keep and what it takes uh, to get there. So, and I think it also, it, it encourages you from that experience to ensure that you're communicating to the operations side, because having been on the operations side, you probably know what it's like when you don't get that kind of communication. You know, when you find out something, um, you know, at the last minute, you've got to jump through hoops because somebody, you know, did a deal and, you know, didn't do the, do the background work. And I'm, I'm sure anybody who's been on the operations side can probably cite, you know, uh, experiences like that. Um, I know. Well, and, and I would also say, I think you have more appreciation for what your suppliers are going through and you can be a better partner and collaborate more and be more open and share more data and insight than somebody who has not been in sales before. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I feel that having had the operational leadership experience coming into a customer, I often know what their challenges are as a business. Um, you know, in some cases, you know, close to as well as they do, just having managed those different challenges uh, myself. And so I think you can both uh, anticipate, empathize, um, and bring a sense of, uh, you know, understanding to the customer that um, you know what they're dealing with. And I think you, know, you talk about, you know, like made the joke about the used car salesman. But I think ultimately what I learned going into sales is that it's, it's like anything else in the sense that what makes a good salesperson is the same thing that makes somebody good in any other part of the business. It's uh, being reliable, trustworthy, um, somebody that you can, you know, know you can... Um, bank on when, you know, things are going to be difficult, that they're going to be attentive and uh, on top of their business. And, you know, I think like everything else, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, trust, uh, I've heard a saying that trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. And I think that, uh, you know, that's what all relationships are built off of, not just business. So, uh, yeah, I think it definitely uh, empowers you with um, a much broader understanding. <laughs> So you made what I would consider to be a pretty big transition. You were general manager of sales for uh, Aero Electronics. Mm -hmm. 
And then you transitioned into becoming a COO for another company. So how did you make such a massive transition? Well, I went from being sort of a medium fish in a very, very large pond to being a bigger fish in a smaller pond, I guess. Um, the thing that I was really attracted to, and I, I, I was exposed to the opportunity because some people I've known for a long time, personal and, and uh, professional relationships, were putting together a group to take this company out of bankruptcy. And it gave me, I, I saw it as giving me an opportunity to tie together the, the different pieces that I had um, had responsibility for in a larger corporate setting. You know, I managed uh, distribution facilities and operations, manufacturing operations. Um, I've had, you know, the sales operations side I actually went out and carried a bag as a sales guy before taking over as a sales leader again. And so uh, it was really the opportunity to um, have a chance to manage all those pieces and more uh, together. So, um, you know, it was really a, a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, the size of the leap, yes, in the complexity of the role. Uh, but, you know, we took a company out of bankruptcy. It was, you know, we took it out. It was $11 million. Back at Arrow, I had individual customers that were, you know, two to three times that big. And so, you know, it goes to the point, too, that, you know, it's not always the dollar amounts that drive the uh, complexity and challenges of the jobs. It's, you know, the scope of responsibility and the complexity of the business. And, uh, you know, it gave me great opportunities at, at U.S. Cavalry, too, because it was, you know, it was an omni-channel business. Uh, we had e-commerce. I hadn't had a chance to really play too much in the e-commerce space. So that was a great way to stretch myself there. And we also had uh, brick and mortar retail stores. So uh, it was an opportunity to kind of get some experience in, in that part of the business. But the, uh, the biggest challenge and the most fulfilling part of that was coming into a company that was really just in chaos after bankruptcy. And, you know, morale was pretty, pretty much in the toilet. Um, a lot of the good people had left. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the challenge of reinvigorating the environment, the culture, uh, rebuilding the team. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a big leap, but I, I had this probably the, the job that I enjoyed the most out of all the ones that I've had. So when you were there, which was U.S. Calvary Stores, you oversaw procurement. So they were a function that reported into U.S. COO. Hard to get suppliers to want to work with you when they likely did not get paid or had a pretty bad experience. So how did you focus on rebuilding supplier relationships? I feel like this is something that's relevant to really anyone who's in a capacity or role interacting and working with suppliers in a manufacturing environment. Yeah, it was, uh, it was probably one of the biggest challenges because, you know, being a, a distributor, primarily focused distributor in that business, you know, you really, your suppliers can really uh, make you or break you in many ways. Um, they certainly make it a whole lot easier. And, you know, when we came in, it had gotten so bad, the previous owner, uh, had literally taken the uh, accounts payable phone line and put it in a closet because he wasn't even answering calls. And so I think the first uh, and biggest lesson was um, rebuilding communication. Um, go back to that issue of trust again. You know, um, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, um, anybody who's been through that 
um, you know, it's got, got paid out 20 cents on the dollar, particularly when you're dealing with a lot of private companies, smaller businesses, that um, it's not just a business issue, it's a personal issue. And so it was really about uh, sort of a slow, methodical, um, persistent effort to build those personal relationships and prove yourself through both proactive communication and performance. And at the end of the day, you know, some people came along much easier than others. Um, some suppliers wouldn't, you know, wouldn't sell to us except cash in advance, you know, for a couple of years. But um, ultimately, when they start to see that you're running a business properly, that you're you're delivering on your promises, and uh, ultimately also when they see that you're driving your sales and they see all their competitors getting the business that they've walked away from, uh, people's attitudes eventually change. And I think we saw that pretty much across the board. But, you know, likewise, you know, they remembered um, the previous ownership, um, yeah. you know, paying them out 10 cents on a dollar or whatever it was. Um, you know, we also tended to remember those people that got behind us because we weren't that we weren't the old owner. We're a new group, you know, give us a chance to show we can deliver. But it took some time. So one of the things that stands out to me uh, also at your, um, when you were at U.S. Calvary stores is that you were able to achieve inventory accuracy of over 99 percent and drastically increase average inventory turns. How did you do this? Because that's quite an impressive number in general, but in particular for a company that's coming out of bankruptcy, very, very impressive and hard to do. Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but, you know, I think the inventory accuracy piece, you know, again, going back to Arrow, I was fortunate in having been through an organization that was, you know, uh, had this sort of type of business down to a science. And so, I inherited a lot of knowledge of, of best practices from there and, and really just applied them to the specifics of what we were dealing with. Um, you know, the inventory actually is prim primarily driven by warehouse performance. Um, and it's really, you know, I, I tend to believe these things in their uh, essence are fairly straightforward. Um, when you bring product into the warehouse, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Um, there's only one right way that you're going to, you know, that you're allowed to perform that. It's it's about making sure that processes are uh, clearly designed, uh, clearly cr communicated and trained, um, and then, you know, supervised and enforced, you know. Um, and I think ultimately uh, having good process discipline in your warehouse um, combined with a, a rigorous cycle count uh, procedure uh, to verify and report out, it has to be something you know, it's kind of like some of these other things you get into and in, in trying to drive improvement in, in measurable areas like safety. Uh, it can't be something you look at periodically. It has to be something you look at every day. And so, you know, every day we would do cycle counts and the next day you'd be looking at the uh, re results and somebody has to answer that. So a relentless pursuit of um, managing your business to the data points that are the indicator, uh, indicators of success. And, um, you know, we had, you know, multiple flavors of, of cycle counts, just trying to be efficient with it, you know, built it into the process and, um, you know, simple things like, 
whenever you would zero out a location, it would generate a cycle count. So, you know, you automatically knew right there that if you were taking the last piece out of the warehouse, out of that location, and it didn't generate a cycle count, you knew that you, uh, your inventory was off because it, it should, it should ask you to verify zero. Right. And so a lot of things like that, you know, you can focus cycle counts on your high dollar issues. Um, but I think most, most of it is that's sort of the evaluation part. The, the key in the uh, warehouse side is, is rigorous, clear and well-defined processes, well-communicated and trained, documented in SOPs and, uh, and supervised and enforced. And, um, one, one of the other things that you did when you were COO there is you drove continuous innovation in customer interactions and internal efficiency gains. So big, big focus on you for you and your team was on efficiency. How did you do this and why was this so important to your business? And the reason I'm highlighting this is I think it's really important for people working in manufacturing to realize the importance of the customer interaction and what is yeah. that experience for your customers? Yeah, it was as interesting. I was thinking about this in in preparation for you know discussing this, and I I think the a lot of the stuff that we spent our energies on system wise on um, internal efficiency gains. Uh, also bore a lot of fruit in the in the customer relationship side. Um, you know, for example, managing inventory not just uh, from a from an accuracy standpoint, but from a uh, uh, from a availability, um, making sure that you had, uh, particularly in the e-commerce space, where you know you're a click away from losing a customer if you don't have the inventory to sell that you've uh, that you've advertised. Um, so I think, you know, being being increasingly effective at making sure we had the proper inventory levels in, in the items that we're selling, um, making sure that it was accurate so that when somebody went to pick it, they didn't have to go back to the customer and say, well, actually, we don't have it anymore. Um, the ability to balance inventory between uh, e-commerce and the retail stores and, and contract sales. We also had a, a contract sales uh, side of the business that... Um, you know, could sell, you know, the same items that we're selling on e-commerce, you know, at one at a time, could sell out what would be, you know, 60, 90 days worth of usage on e-commerce in one sale at uh, in contract sales. So it was a fairly complex inventory management challenge to make sure that you um, didn't wipe out your inventory and leave your e-customer, e-commerce customers hanging, etc. Um, likewise, you know, we did a lot of stuff with internal to uh, build our uh, user interface on the website, um, making it as um, smooth functioning and quick as possible. We did a lot of A-B testing on every feature on the web, uh, website you could imagine. It always amazed me getting involved in e-commerce, um, you know, that the size and shape of the button you click on can have a, a noticeable difference in um how much traffic you'll get on that particular, you know, item. Um, we did a lot of uh, stuff, for example, using analytics on the, on the website to really be able to dig down into where we were uh, getting traffic, where we were losing traffic and, and adjusting accordingly. Um, really just kind of, uh, you know, we did some internal stuff, for example, 
contract sales, we used to have guidelines for the salespeople on, you know, margin limits on what they could uh, sell uh, on a large sale. And so we set up something internally um, through customization of our ERP system, order entry, that uh, if a salesperson put in an order that was outside those uh, specs, that it would drop into a review queue. Um, for the managers to look at, and that if it was over a certain amount, you know, it required two sign-offs, electronic sign-offs, to release the order. So we had a, a, a double check to make sure that somebody didn't go out and sell something that either uh, sucked up too much inventory or, you know, was selling something beyond the margin guidelines that we had sent without getting approvals. And uh, so it was a lot of stuff like that. A lot of it was brought about by the fact that we had done an ERP implementation and spent a lot of effort uh, customizing um, the products to, uh, you know, our specific needs. You know, Makes it, I, I cringe when I hear customization. I, I know the pain that can go along with that. Very, very, it can be very expensive as well. Well, you know, um, we had a, when I first arrived there, we were actually using outsourced uh, IT consultants. And, you know, and this was just in the initial phases of getting the system to function at a basic level because uh, coming out of the box, and this is, again, one of those experiences where when I first arrived there, um, I, it was day two of implementation. I, I didn't get there until after they'd already put the new ERP system in. And one of the things I, you know, had been through this situation in Arrow where, you know, it's, it's really one of those things you have to do a lot of work up front where you're going to do a lot of work after the fact, but you're going to do it in a in a rushed and panicked fashion because the system's not performing the way you needed it to. And so, uh, you know, for what I was paying, you know, uh, to uh, what I was paying IT consultants who were moving very slowly, um, I was able to hire, you know, two of my own programmers and, and go in and, and uh, you know, two programmers for a year for what I was paying in two to three months. And so we decided to bring some in IT sources in-house and, uh, and that's what drove a lot of our customization because, again, going back to the, the solution, the system solution you choose is uh, one of the things that goes into choosing an ERP system is how much ability do you have to customize it because a lot of them you don't. And I would never go down the trail with an ERP system. I had to go back to the manufacturer to customize. Mm -hmm. So next career move for you is you were responsible for manufacturing at a company called Silicrone. What was the most important supply chain challenge you and your team were able to solve there? Honestly, uh, Silicrone was a fairly simple um, supply chain. It was a sort of a very focused product line. Um, you know, building these very highly engineered cylinders for the rotogravure and flexographic printing industry. And so, you know, if we were buying these rather large steel tubes from a steel tube uh, manufacturer, and there weren't a lot of uh, items in the bill of material uh, to build these things. It was really just the same product in different sizes. Um, and the, the spec really drove into, uh, you know, the engineering part of it. Um, and the manufacturing portion, which was really where our biggest challenges were. So um, I'd like to be able to claim some 
significant uh, accomplishment there. But quite honestly, supply chain was really the the uh, uh, the procurement side was really the the simplest part of it. It was really about gaining some efficiencies in the manufacturing process, um, and and also it was a unique business in the sense that. Um, it was in a very niche business and Silicon had about 80% market share. So, uh, you know, which was good in the sense that, you know, what they say be the first in or the last out, um, cause you can command some very good margins. Um, we also, I also spent some time cause we did some value added functions on the cylinders. We used to have to coat them in copper. Uh, we had a, a lot of, you know, very expensive capital equipment, um, in the business and you know uh, was trying to find ways to grow sales into um different market segments because the the printing industry and that specific type of printing was you know anticipated uh, to eventually go the way of the dinosaur so it hadn't happened yet but um that was really my focus was more on uh the manufacturing and sales side of the business at silicon okay so next stint for you was serving as the general manager of a company called metal sales manufacturing which is the nation's largest manufacturer of metal roofing wall panels and building systems so near and dear to my heart my uncle is the ceo and founder of scudder roofing so he owns a, a very large roofing and solar company in the Monterey Carmel area. So I, I know a little bit about roofing. So you, when you were there, you managed their largest manufacturing facility. So they had several, but you were in charge of the, the highest producing facility. Yeah. What was the hardest part from a supply chain perspective when you were running that manufacturing facility? Um, you know, we had a separate procurement department that ran out of corporate, um, and they, they did a pretty good job. Um, they were fairly well organized. Um, the biggest challenge from my facility standpoint, because we had to service not only the business that we were going out and selling and, and booking, but we had to be ready to service, um, sales that were being booked in various other regions, which we didn't necessarily have very good visibility on. And so it did create extra challenges to um, ensure that you had the right inventory mix of raw material, which in the case of this stuff is, you know, rolled steel, uh, you know, uh, sheets uh, that we were doing through roll formers and, and such. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest challenge was working with procurement to try and make sure that we had the, the appropriate mix of um, uh, inventory to support um, the variety of, of business needs that we were servicing. And that was really one of the things, you know, my time at, uh, at Metal Sales was somewhat limited. Um, and that was one of the challenges because we also, um, I think we mentioned that we were doing an ERP conversion there. Um, and, uh, you know, that provided some... When you say an ERP conversion, are you meaning upgrading existing or were you implementing a brand new system uh, implementing a brand new system and um, you know that turned out to be somewhat problematic because uh, you know again I arrived uh, I had actually when I went to interview at the company I had interviewed for a different role and the president of the company 
uh, saw my background and asked me to take over as the GM of this facility because they were going to be leading the effort on the ERP conversion. And it also, that facility had gone through a couple of different general managers in the last few years. So uh, I accepted and uh, went to uh, work there. Uh, but the, the ERP system that we were converting to was um, already selected. And, you know, I was a little bit concerned as soon as I saw the organization that was selected because it was somewhat of a smaller uh, niche software company, didn't have a very large install base. And um, it was also one of these uh, situations where as the user, you didn't have any access to the source code. So translation, you can't do any of your own customization. And so when you did the implementation, you would uh, work with the computer, uh, the software company to customize whatever you needed at that time. Um, but then once you said, okay, this is done, you had a certain amount of time that, uh, you know, they were very responsive when you're installing, but then after you, you know, signed the check, um, trying to get something fixed and things kept breaking that uh, it, it turned into a, a bit of a problematic uh, conversion. So once again, I think uh, reinforcement on some of the lessons of spend the time up front, you know, as the old carpenter saying is um, measure twice, cut once. Um, when, uh, you know, choosing software packages, uh, it, it's, it pays to spend a lot of time making sure that it's a good fit up front. Um, and making sure that when you go to implement, you do a lot of the work before you actually install. Um, because uh, once you're in it, um, it's hard to get out and expensive. So, Yeah, I host a Women in ERP show. We actually have a show tomorrow. So every month I bring ladies on to share their experiences. And ERPs are not easy. And unless you've actually lived either upgrading or implementing a new one, it's it's hard to understand how much complexity there is and how hard the change management piece yeah. is. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's not just the system side, it's the people side of it. You know, I've, I've again, I've been through a variety of these types of changes and just uh, getting people to um, abandon what they've become comfortable with and jump into something new and challenging. Uh, has to be managed uh, with a sensitivity to the impact on people. And, you know, so there's that training element to it, the training and the testing um, that if you, you know, if you don't take the time to equip people so that they feel comfortable, um, you can have the best system in the world. Um, but if you, if you're not preparing the people for it, uh, it can be a disaster. Um, you know, vice versa, I've seen very poor systems work well uh, when you have people that are proficient um, and know how to use it and make the best of it. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I've been, uh, I've been through several, uh, conversions and I've walked in, um, shortly after a few have been done, usually not very well. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not something you want to be part of, uh, if you can avoid it. Um, cause it takes a while, even under best of circumstances, it takes a while for, for people to, uh, get used to the new system. And often it's not when it comes out of the box, um, most systems, you know, you may be taking a step backward. Uh, it's not uncommon at all from a functionality standpoint. You know, you're leaving a legacy system where you spent a lot of time customizing it and you know how everything works and you've gotten the functionality that you need. Now you go to a new ERP system 
And if you don't do that work up front, now you've got all these people that are also pissed off saying, why do we spend all this money uh, buying something that is less capable than what we had? Yeah, it doesn't work how, how my old system did. Why? Right, right. <laughs> so, Dennis, in your last role where you had procurement responsibility, you worked at a company called Fancy Foods. Yes. And working in an industry where you have time sensitive things makes supply chain and procurement much more challenging. So what were your biggest challenges when you were at Fancy Foods? Yeah, I think that just to that point, when you're dealing with um, perishable inventory, now we were selling fresh meat, protein, fish, um, perishable inventory, uh, all of which have, you know, different clocks on them as soon as they come in. Chicken is different than pork, is different than beef. Um, and you've got commodity pricing on top of that. So whatever you purchased yesterday, maybe, you know, maybe purchasing it at a different price tomorrow. And even in some cases with the beef market, for example, you know, we would see prices actually change more than once in a day. So, you know, that can be a great thing when you're, uh, you know, when your prices are going up because now you own inventory that just got more valuable. Um, but vice versa, you can, you know, wind up having inventory that is uh, lost value. And so, uh, and, and you're already in the food distribution business, usually operating on pretty thin margins. So commodity pricing, perishable inventory, and thin margins makes for a, a rather challenging uh, procurement business. And uh, I think like, you know, every other business, but perhaps a little bit on steroids with this sort of environment is you have to be on top of your numbers. Um, you have to be, um, and you have to have some process disciplines in place so that um, if you wind up in a situation where you're long on inventory in a particular area that it's not moving, you have to have a process in place that says, okay, what's our, what's our discount policy? What's our, what's our action steps that we're going to initiate on day X to start to move this out the door in one way, shape or form? Because every day, you know, particularly if you're selling into retail, for example, you know, if you're selling chicken to a retail store, they want to have out of a 12 day shelf life, they want to have six or seven days at least for themselves to sell it. So you now have half the shelf life of the product that you have to get it out the door. Whereas if you're selling it to a food service organization that may, uh, you know, cut it and cook it that night, uh, you have a little bit more leeway. So it's everything from, you know, being on top of your numbers on what inventory levels you're driving to having, you know, good process discipline so that when a uh, product is not moving as fast as it should be, you have steps that you take to maximize your remaining profits. Um, and also knowing your customers and your sales channels so you can push product in areas, you know, in, in part of that, you know, action items for uh, when you're moving product because, uh, you know, you may have longer time if the if the window for retail is closing, you know, you can turn around and maybe move it to a food service customer or something like that. So, yeah, it was it was probably one of the most challenging uh, procurement environments um, I worked in. And it's a balancing act, too, because one of the challenges I had in trying to also be responsible for sales there is that, you know, one of the problems is that if you get too tightly focused on never 
throwing out any inventory or never having to discount inventory, then you're not bringing enough inventory in to sell. And so you're sending salespeople out there to go sell, sell, sell. But I don't have enough inventory in these areas because the buyers are too afraid of, you know, something going below margin. So that was also one of the things we did with the business to try to align people with the company's goals was we uh, changed the incentive programs for both sales and procurement. So, you know, procurement used to be incentivized on what they got for a cents per pound, for example. Well, you know, if that's what's going to drive a big portion of my check, I'm going to hold my price on this item. Um, but then I'm making it harder for salespeople to sell or I can't discount it to move it. You know, all that sort of, uh, you know, interactions between, you know, what works for the company as a whole uh, should be what works for all the individual pieces. And I think we were, when I came in there, we were kind of at loggerheads and everybody was looking to cover their their particular uh, incentive or their particular piece of the pie and it wasn't aligned towards the the goals of the company so that was some of the challenges there but um so all of, so all of these different experiences that you had gm coo sales leadership one of the themes that i think about when i think about you and your career is being really really strong in communication especially across departments, which yeah. is not always easy to do, especially when you're working in an environment like manufacturing. Yeah. So much of your focus when it comes to direct materials and procurement has actually been managing it as a part of a larger business. Right. What has been your approach? I'd like to have you kind of walk me through your strategy and how it's been so effective for you. Well, I think the uh, the first piece goes to, you know, putting in place um, data capture and KPIs and sort of designing what are the elements that you want to measure for evaluating your performance. And so, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, inventory or a, a procurement side, you know, breaking your inventory into categories, you know, fast movers versus slow movers, you know, managing, you know, having the information to look at any particular skew and see, you know, what's moving, what's not moving and build that into a, a reporting system that, uh, you know, gets looked at, you know, every week, you know, the purchasing director may be looking at that every day, but, you know, I would, you know, generally have a weekly staff meeting where everybody, you know, had their um, KPIs to report out on. And, uh, you know, if everything was, flowing smoothly and the numbers are going in the right direction. It was a relatively easy conversation. Um, but if the numbers are not going in the right direction, there had to be some answers as to why. And there had to be accountability for actions to, you know, make corrections. But I think a lot of it flows from, you know, having the data available to be able to look at and evaluate uh, how you're performing on the numbers. If you don't, you know, I'm a firm believer, if you don't know your numbers, you can't know your business. And then, you know, by doing that in a, in a staff meeting, um, even at a, at a top level, you know, over a try to keep never try to have a met staff meeting not go beyond an hour, um, where at least there's a, you know, there's an accountability process there that, you know, if it needs to be dealt with in more depth, it can be taken offline. But what it starts to do, I think, is also uh, formulated appreciation between the different department heads 
for the challenges that each other are facing and an opportunity. You know, that was one of the other rules of a staff meeting is, you know, uh, try to keep things focused on what you know, in this conversation about impacts more than just you. If it's just you, we take that outside the meeting. But if it's something that uh, impacts other departments, that you, you bring that to the table, even if you are not quite sure how it's going to impact uh, the other departments so that they can start to have a sensitivity to that and, uh, and have a chance to, to comment. Um, because again, I, I think going back to some of those, you know, formative lessons, uh, you know, having, uh, even at Arrow Electronics, having, you know, a very professional, well, high functioning procurement department that at one point without communicating to the warehouse decided they were, they were going to be driven to incentivize, uh, performance on, you know, inventory turns and, and carrying charges. So without communicating to the warehouse, they went out and, um, uh, changed their purchasing practices and they started buying more frequently uh, in smaller quantities. And, you know, all of a sudden, without any warning, we started seeing the number of receipts, you know, going through the roof and almost doubling, um, you know, and it just drove the cost of the warehouse up because all of our transaction volumes and, head and labor requirements you know, went up significantly. Now, it may still have made sense for the business if we'd had that conversation beforehand, but nobody had the conversation, so we didn't know. And I think you, you assume in a large professional organization that those sorts of things happen, but, you know, even in the best organizations, they don't happen by themselves. They have to be orchestrated. And I think that's the key is you have to make sure that there's an appreciation across departmentally for the challenges in each other, um, deal with and a, and a respect to make sure that we all have an obligation to find the solution that's best for the whole, not for any individual part. Well, thank you for discussing how to create a process for effective cross-department communication with me, Dennis. Where would you like to send people to find you if they want to chat or learn more about you? I can be found pretty easily. I don't think there's too many Dennis Garvey's running around out there on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, that's the primary social media, uh, platform I'm active on these days. So if you missed anything, you can check out our show notes. You can find us by typing in what the duck, another supply chain podcast in Google to have optimal search results. Make sure to add another supply chain podcast to the end of your search to ensure you don't miss a single episode. Make sure to follow this podcast and subscribe to us on YouTube. I'm at Sarah Scudder on LinkedIn and S Scudder on Twitter. This brings us to the end of another episode of What the Duck, another supply chain podcast. I am your host, Sarah Scudder, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>